Hey there, and welcome to the memoir, My Dad Wouldn't Write. This is a limited series of conversations between a daughter and a father about the things that make us family and the items in my dad's 82 years that have helped to shape who he is today. You know, he's had this incredible life as a cultural worker, poet, professor, an activist, and mentor, but he wouldn't write a memoir. So this podcast is a way to get those conversations onto tape and to find out exactly what shaped this incredible and complex and far from perfect man that I love, Eugene Benjamin Redmond. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to be radically honest with your father with no topic off limit, well, sit back and enjoy. I think you're going to find this fascinating. Today, we're going to be moving to a part of my dad's life uh, about which he is most proud uh, because it's really an astounding accomplishment. Not that being born a black child in the U.S. <laughs> and surviving isn't, isn't an outstanding, <laughs> outstanding accomplishment, but then you go further and really impact um education by way of being one of the, you know, um, architects of the black studies movement in the United States. So dad, let's start with kind of setting the, the context for the times. Um, as an elementary student, how much black history or black literature were you exposed to? A lot. Because of segregation. Okay. The context is questionable and sometimes problematic. Mm. What do you mean? Well, because it was very, very important, but it didn't. It didn't always say a lot about what we would do. Oh. Talked a lot about what we had done, mm-hmm. and what we'd done in the past, and what we were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. It was the era of Negro first. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that crop up with Colin Powell and Kamala Harris, and of right, course right, right. Barack Obama. Barack Obama. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we we got quite a bit of Negro history, mm-hmm. and we weren't that far from the uh, founding of Negro History Week. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Carter G. Woodson mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, the author of uh, a widely read book, uh, The Miseducation of the Negro. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and we knew mm-hmm. about black bourgeoisie. Interestingly, ironically, 
published first in French, mm-hmm. in France, mm-hmm. uh, which gave us the breakdown of the black community mm-hmm. and the the power structure of of the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, primarily it was by word of mouth. Okay. Um, students who came back from uh, historically black uh, colleges and universities and our own trips to nearby HBCUs like Lincoln mm-hmm. in Missouri and, uh, Lincoln in Missouri Lincoln and Jefferson Missouri. City Missouri There's another one in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. and we came to took trips to Tennessee and Mississippi mm-hmm. um, so we got it by osmosis mm-hmm. photosynthesis you know uh, but the context was not always uh, clear to us because the other side wasn't responding or participating in it. Oh. You know, so in terms of a fuller America, what happened to us in full America mm-hmm. was, uh, mm-hmm. was, was, was yet to be known. There were updates on bulletin boards, kiosks, you know. For example, when I was in junior high school, when Brooks won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, mm-hmm. but the emphasis was never on poetry. It was on a Negro first. Right. So, and I've said this to you before, I don't know where I would have been by the time, say, I finished high school, had poetry been emphasized as much as the Negro first. Mm-hmm. You know, an aspiring poet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then, so th- that way, that way we got it in bits and pieces, the, the notices in the front. And uh, when I was growing up, there were like nine pharmacies or drugstores in East St. Louis, mm-hmm. black, mm-hmm. black owned. Mm-hmm. And we went to those and we stood, you know, to get our ice cream and prescription. Mm-hmm. But we stood and uh, when we waited on orders, we stood at the magazine racks. And in addition to all the black magazines and most of the well-known white magazines, mm-hmm. we also got several black daily and a couple weekly black newspapers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we read, we were we were pretty well read mm-hmm. on some of the things that were happening. Mm-hmm. The context sometimes it was difficult for us. For example, there'd be there'd be a Joe Lewis, or there'd be um, a uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, mm-hmm. and they would and. You hear an uncle or some older man talking to another man. Man, black people are something else. Black people are something else. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you see the invention of a bomb or some major something in space. Mm-hmm. And the uncle would say, "Man, white man's a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he can do anything." And then. The next day, there'd be a picture of a lynching. Mm. 
And the same uncle or friend would say, adult would say, man, the white man ain't shit. <laughs> same guy. Right. So it wasn't always contextualized for us. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you about at the collegiate level. Through your coursework in the armed services and your undergraduate coursework at SIUE, on to your master's, how do you feel uh, black authors were represented? Uh, they weren't. Okay, so they were not present. No, and what you knew was, you knew about Ralph Phillips and you knew about Richard Wright because your black teacher in public school told you about it, but you didn't read it. You knew about James Rowland Johnson and Paula Dunbar because we recited it. Okay. That was something all black communities did. Mm -hmm. Recited Paula Dunbar, Langston Hughes, and uh, um, James Welland Johnson. Mm -hmm. In fact, in my group of friends, you were considered illiterate if you hadn't memorized their favorite voice and singing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as far as that being a formal study, you know, of course, we had a school named Dunbar that had been named in 1910. So, right. You know. Well, you mentioned that your one, uh, a bit, your one uh, opportunity to really kind of grapple with some black literature was when you compared a a black writer story to a white writer story. Right. It was it was uh, uh, Hemingway and Baldwin. <laughs> Hemingway and Baldwin. Now, was the, was the Baldwin story assigned in your class, or did you go and get that and create that, compare and contrast? I got it. Okay. And was your, was your professor open to it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, first, the professor was very open this, uh, at, you know, in Wash U. Okay. I had professors. Mm -hmm. That was what I did. Mm -hmm. That was my thesis. My master's thesis okay. was an extent, an extending and refinement of two term papers that I'd done, one on Baldwin and one on Hemingway. Okay. Okay. And um, yeah, and 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 uh, inter interestingly enough, the there were a couple of teachers who uh, encouraged my uh, exploration of black literature, mm -hmm. where I could find it, what I knew about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, also encouraged my writing of poetry coming out of the black ethos, mythos, mm -hmm. the black situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could, when I was in graduate school, you could probably caught, count MFA programs on two, on two sets of hands at the most mm. in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what you did was you just got a cluster of courses, mm. and you signed up, and many of them you do, you submitted some poetry. Mm -hmm. You were alerted to how many people could, if your name it was you, your name was put up on the, it was a homes lounge or the English board, but you. Your name was put there if you were accepted. Okay. Thirteen people around an oval table. And you went up, and as you went up and looked at the list, 
uh, you, you did this. <laughs> so you, my dad just you, made a celebratory yeah, move. Or you walked away with your head dropped. Dejected because your name. You went on that list of 13. <laughs> selected for that table. 13 angry poets. Yes. But <laughs> so. To sit with, uh, to sit with Mona Van Dyne. Mm-hmm. Or um, Donald Finkel. Mm-hmm. Or Jarvis Thurston. Okay. Yeah. So the reason why I asked you that is because I just wanted to make sure the the listeners were clear on um, how your experiences was really representative around the country. Yes. yes. Um, now. Even at black colleges. Yes, even at black colleges, because black colleges were concerned with making you competitive in the world as it was. That's right. And in the world as it was. Right. It would need to be, like you said, white nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> white nationalism. White nationalist yeah. literature. So I wanted to make clear to the listeners that what you experienced was really representative. Um, you know, I taught at a college here in the area for almost a decade, and there wasn't a time that I didn't assign um, a Baldwin story or uh, Alice Walker story or... Um, you know, novels yeah. written by black people. And most of the time, the reading list didn't consider it. It was it wouldn't be considered a good reading list if it yeah. wasn't representative in that way. Yeah. And you and other young thinkers like you are the reason that paradigm was shifted exactly. from black people obviously can't add anything to our academic to our academy, yeah. to you don't have uh, black people, uh, to, <laughs> to you don't academy, have black people, <laughs> to our understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So, what do you count as the beginning of the sea change in U.S. universities regarding black studies? Students. Okay, so students. Students, black studies per se. Now, the student asked for two things. We want our experiences, our histories, our cultures included in the curriculum. Mm. And we want two other participants, constituents. One would be more black students. Mm -hmm. They went hand in hand, eye in eye. And people to teach the courses who look like us. Mm. And there was an interesting twist, Treasure, a very interesting thing that happened. When we hit the campuses, it was so quick until it knocked all of us off our feet. How quickly, just wound went, went across the, like one of these tornadoes, like a, like an earthquake, like a, mm-hmm. you know. And the fire. it suddenly got white teachers, hippies and white people who Proclaim their blackness 
they stood in. They stood in the courses. Mm -hmm. When I got to California State University of Sacramento, there were two or three. Which was 1971, 70. correct? 1970, okay. In fact, I was showing Ramses yesterday my ID from um, Oberlin. That's it. The year your mother was born, because it said it expired, 1971. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Ram smiled. I just told him, your mom, the year your mom was born. Mm-hmm. And he had it uh, laminated. Mm-hmm. Same year mom was born. So, but all over, there are people stepping in. So when you say stood in and stepping in, you mean, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. They stood what, in you, to what, teach the courses. They stood in to teach the courses because black students were, and white students of consciousness, and every student of consciousness, they were saying, hey, there's something wrong with this curriculum. Right. Hey, uh, what's going on in the streets is not being reflected in what is happening in our classrooms. And there were white instructors trying to respond to that and responding to That's it. That's right. Okay. And what's interesting is, and black teachers were f like flown in mm -hmm. like twice a week mm -hmm. to different places to have that black face in the classroom, mm -hmm. you know, like from New York you know, mm -hmm. and from, um, say, Chicago mm -hmm. and University of Iowa, Wall, different places where people were, there were, they were a bit more relaxed with the curriculum, mm -hmm. culturally, academically, mm -hmm. ethnically. And so you could go, say, uh, to a community college, mm -hmm. or you go to City College of New York, and you might pick up, say, an urban studies course, mm -hmm. or a course in uh, African-American literature. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So, or as they would have said at the time, black literature. Like, yeah. And a lot of people, um, a lot of people were, a lot of, a lot of places across the country had very, uh, very smart black students, mm -hmm. upper class black students, and students who were doing masters in, in literature, teach the undergraduate courses, you know? And there was a, then a, a more advanced person, a professor who was teaching a record, you know, who would okay, you know, the papers and the grades. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, it, the, there are a lot of intricacies, you know. Well, you know what you made me remember? Um, I think I was watching a documentary about the Black Power Movement. And they had this beautiful footage. Mm -hmm. And you know, they had this beautiful, you know, you have this incredible soundtrack and they're splicing in, you know, moving f footage of Angela Davis being released and throwing up the fist and you know how the, they do they put it we so good looking and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then they you know it's this is a Curtis Mayfield soundtrack in the back and all this thing but there was this wonderful moment 
where uh, Howard University had their first like dark skin campus queen. And I don't know if the curtains open or the curtains curtains came up, but there she was in all her glory with this stunning outsized afro. <laughs> and it was just like so beautiful, right? And it makes me think about that's that's the kind of urgency, the sitting in, the taking over of administration buildings that was going on and people were demanding that you all were responding to. That's right. And then it began to formalize itself. Mm -hmm. Because when I went through your archives, I saw where you guys were having conferences, developing curriculum. So when would you say it moved from, oh God, let's get a black person in the room, <laughs> standards be damned, you know what I'm saying? Some people slipping through who might not have all the education, but might have a lot of experience, grad students, you know, moving in to teach courses, to the formalization where you have to be accredited and, you know, people are well, coming, bodies are coming by, you know, really checking it, checking the quality of what well, you're doing. Uh, that, that, that came with the formulation of uh, different kinds of organizations and associations. National Council of Black Studies, National Association of African American Educators. Mm. Um, uh, it had begun early on with CLA in 1939 mm -hmm. when uh, Nick Avon Ford and all those people, Sterling Plump was in uh, Pardon me, strike that. Sterling Plump is an important poet and scholar, mm -hmm. a friend of mine, Sterling Brown. Sterling Brown. Okay. And the CLA was founded, College Language Association, mm -hmm. uh, on the southeast coast. Mm -hmm. Because MLA wouldn't accept black English professors. Mm. Interesting. So we started organizations that de devoted to our professionalism mm -hmm. uh, started. And that's when we, you know, hit the campus. Mm -hmm. People joined those, National Council of Black Studies, um, and then brought on people. But there was a, there were other uh, elements and other uh, parts to it. Mm -hmm. For example, um, how are you going to certify people? How are you going to get you know people a PhD in Black Studies? Mm. Well, that's where those of us who were pioneers came in. I mean, pioneers of Black Studies in school, mm -hmm. but the real pioneers came in the '30s mm -hmm. and employed the individual people who taught courses. Um, uh, like the one black professor whose name I can't think of now was the first person to teach a, a course in, uh, in African American art, Negro literature. Mm. Yeah, and it was at Jackson State in uh, like the 1930s. Mm. He edited a major anthology with a white professor.